Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to uh, a few minutes um, talking about a great book, Beyond Our Control. Subtitle, Let Go of Unmet Expectations, Overcome Anxiety, and Discover Intimacy with God. This is a wonderful book for people who are going through tough times, will go through tough times, or working with people who are in tough times. And we're privileged to have one of the authors, uh, Lauren McAfee, uh, she and her husband Michael wrote this. Um, Lauren's a friend of mine, and I'm so looking forward to spending a little time. So, Lauren, let's start right off. Why on God's good earth did you write this book? <laughs> well, that's a good question. Uh, so I wrote this book, Beyond Our Control, because of my own life circumstances that had me realizing I had a lot less control over things in my life than I thought I had or that I wish that I had. I think all people go through circumstances in life where we kind of have those those realizations that kind of hit you really hard. And in my life, just to give a little bit of context for uh, what those circumstances were, my husband and I, we, we felt like, you know, we had a really easy life. We grew, we met when we were seven years old. We started dating in high school. We got married when we were in college and just kind of had this expectation that, you know, you, you work hard, you do your best and, you know, you can, things will work out. You can get a, you can find a job. You can, you know, if you invest in your marriage, things will be easy. Uh, if you want to have kids, that'll come easily. And so many things had come our way that were such such blessings. But then whenever we were in our mid-20s, we started to realize, you know, life wasn't always going to be that that way. We through our through the book, people will read about how we've experienced infertility for nearly a decade. We pursued adoption for years and years and years, and doors continued to close. Once we did finally adopt our daughter from China. We were home for a month and a half, and then she was diagnosed with cancer. And then in our second adoption, we had a child that was in our home for a year, and then was suddenly uh, had to be given back to uh, a different family. And so anyways, all of these pain points that were completely beyond our control were really pivotal moments for us, where we had to realize, okay, if we don't have control, um, you know, where do we turn and how can we look to God, the God that we believe in, uh, who has all control. And so that's where the title of the book came in is beyond our control. And we wrote this, Michael and I, the reason we wrote this is because we, we were processing through so many of these concepts and we wanted that to be a service to others who we know can relate to the beyond our control theme in some way, even if it's not in these specific examples that we have in our life, the theme was broad enough that I know hopefully it'll be an encouragement to many people. And ironically, we started writing this book or, or developing the concept for this book in January of 2020. We were, we, we were thought, you know, this will be, this will be a book we want to write on. This is what we want to kind of invest in is thinking about how do we handle circumstances in life that, make you feel like things are beyond your control. And then the global situation of the COVID pandemic happened. And then all of a sudden, everyone was dealing with the reality that things are beyond our control. You know, this was something that was not expected and couldn't be controlled. And so we were all kind of wrestling through this globally together. I think this concept of, you know, how, 
how are we trying to grasp for control? What were the ways we kind of misunderstood the idea that we have control of things in our life when really there, there's so much less uh, control we actually have? So anyways, that to say, hopefully that theme will resonate with others and people can uh, connect and relate to the, the topic that we write on. Great. Glad you wrote it um, and you endured well and continue to, not without your ups and downs, uh, as you'll uh, get into, I'm sure. You say right in your preface, I want to prepare you at the outset that Michael's in my journey centers on the topic of adoption. It's mm -hmm. there you discovered that you're not in control and God is. Tell us a little bit about Michael. Yeah. So my husband, Michael, is a teaching pastor at our church and he has, since the earliest days that I've known him, he has loved telling people about Jesus and, and teaching the Bible. So he is a teaching pastor. He's also the founder of a nonprofit called Inspire. And Inspire exists to curate experiences that will deepen faith. So it's a, it's a travel uh, nonprofit where they take groups and families to on, on trips and to different places to experience uh, you know, opportunities for spiritual growth and depth. So it's, it's a very discipleship oriented organization. And he's, uh, yeah, he's an amazing husband, amazing dad. And so it was a lot of fun for him and I to work on writing this together. It's our second book that we've written together, but writing, writing a book together is, was, is always an interesting process because we have very different writing processes. So it's, a uh, <laughs> it's always an adventure to see how it comes together, but he, yeah, he and I have two children together through the blessing of adoption, and we're we're very grateful that we get to have our two daughters, Zion and Zara, who are very sweet. And Zion is our daughter that was adopted from China. And to close the loop on uh, mentioning that she was diagnosed with cancer, she is in remission and she's doing great. So you know we praise God for that. And then and she's five and a half now. And Zara is our ten month old who loves watching her big sister, Zion. She just loves everything Zion does, and it's very sweet. <laughs> That's great. Uh, for those of you who will um, end up getting the book, and I hope you do, you'll see at the beginning of each chapter, either Michael or Lauren, so you know who wrote the chapter. But you can figure that out once you understand their, their writing styles. So let's go back. Um, years waiting for the call. You mm -hmm. get the call. And a month later, you get another call. Tell us. Yeah. Yeah, so our journey to adoption was really something that I always wanted to pursue. My grandparents were adopted, or are adoptive parents. My parents are adoptive parents. They adopted my sister from China. And so once we were, Michael and I were married, we, we, we knew that that was something we were gonna pray, prayerfully consider. So whenever Michael turned 25, I had looked at the international adoption requirements and saw that for all the international adoption programs, they have age requirements, like you have to be at least this age to apply. And there were a few programs that the youngest age you could be was 25. So you had to be 25 to apply for the adoption program. And so the day that my husband turned 25, I went, we went to a nice dinner and I said, hey, I think we should consider starting the adoption process. So that began our journey. And we thought, you know, this will take maybe two, two years, three years at the most, which was pretty standard in international adoption at the time. 
And three years into that adoption process, it was through an African country, the country closed its international program. So we were three years invested in trying to adopt and we had to start back at square one. So we tried then another program that our agency was uh, building and that one wasn't panning out. So then we had to wait until we were 30 to apply to the China adoption program because both parents have to be 30. So it was nearly seven years of longing to be parents and longing to bring a child into our home through adoption before we finally got matched with Zion, our daughter, and and got to make all the plans and travel to China and, and meet her and bring her home. And we were so grateful that the Lord had finally fulfilled this desire of our hearts. And we thought, you know, that was so hard to, for seven years, have this unfulfilled longing. And finally, you know, the Lord gave us this gift. And then, as you mentioned, it was a month and a half later, we were doing routine medical checks and we thought there was a possible situation that she needed some, um, a surgery, a small, easy surgery on her spine. And so she was getting a scan done. And incidentally, while the doctors were checking for something else, this minor thing that might be an issue, they saw that she had a large tumor on her liver that turned out to be cancer. So we had a one and a half year old and that had just entered our family and we were finally parents and then a cancer diagnosis. So we had to rush to the hospital, check in. We stayed there. They had scheduled a surgery for just days later. And that was, that was a moment in my life that I really, I, I would have said up to that point that I absolutely believed God and believed that he was good and he was loving, um, even when hard things happened. But that was a moment in my life when that question became not just theoretical, but very real in my life to say, okay, here I am standing in a, a children's hospital room in the cancer wing. I'm looking at my daughter laying in this hospital bed as a one-year-old attached to all these IVs and all these things. And in this reality, do I believe that God is good? And do I believe that he is in control of this reality that, that has happened? And, you know, in the book, people will see how we wrestled through that, Michael and I, um, more kind of in more depth. But at the end of the day, I had to not just cognitively know that I believe that, but it really became a, a heartfelt belief by going through something hard like that, that those truths that I had said I believed were able to sink in at a deeper level because they were tested. Right. I mean, whenever something uh, it's easy to say something, but whenever you really have to put, you know, that into reality, that's when you can kind of see if it's real or not. And I had to wrestle that down in, in my heart and, and really come to decide, you know, is this what I believe? And, you know, the Lord and his goodness and and reading through scripture again and again, I I saw the truth of his goodness and I saw the truth of how he was with us. We were not alone in, in our pain and in our suffering. And, and he was our comforter. He was our loving father. He, he was there even in the pain. And that was easier to, it, it was easier to believe in the good times 
but it mattered most in the hard times. And so I can look back and see that I'm grateful for that experience because it, it made that truth sink deeper into my life in a way that it wouldn't have had we not had to walk through that cancer journey with our daughter. Well said. Um, we see over and over, don't we, how uh, we learn a whole lot more about who God is in the valleys than we do in the mountaintops. Mountaintops, yeah. we, we tend to go 100 miles an hour in our own speed, in our own pace, in our own way, and then uh, we stop uh, and no, don't know which direction to turn in the valleys and oh, there's God, and that builds our faith. So <laughs> can I jump forward and ask you to tell about Ezra? Before you do, yeah. uh, I want to read uh, a, a few lines from uh, one of the pages you wrote. In those days, after we said goodbye to Ezra forever, you have to tell us that story, I felt a kind of overwhelming desperation that I'd never experienced before. I would have done anything to have my child back in my arms and sensed my grasping for something anything I could do to find control in our situation and force things to be the way I wish they were. So it gives the circumstances and then uh, the emotion that goes with what I just read. Yeah. Yeah. So shortly after our daughter Zion went into remission from her cancer, Michael and I started the adoption process again. And our first adoption had been an international one. And so then our second adoption, we um, pursued a domestic adoption in in the state where we live Oklahoma and you know we we did the paperwork we did all of the process and a couple months or a couple weeks after we finished all the paperwork we got the call from our agency saying a birth mom has chosen you to parent her fam her her son he was just born uh, yesterday you can come meet him at the hospital so we that began uh, our the storyline where Ezra enters our life and Ezra's birth mom entered our life as well. So we had an open relationship with her. We, we stayed in touch with her um, all throughout the time that Ezra was in our home. So we brought Ezra home from the hospital and began pursuing the steps to legally adopt him. Things were going forward well and it, kind of in the, as they normally would. And we had a great relationship with Ezra's birth mom and things were going forward from her end on how she was um, taking the steps forward as well. And we were a couple of months into Ezra being in our home when we realized that our case was gonna be a little more complicated and there, there was someone else who was contesting the adoption. So that meant there had to be a trial to determine where Ezra should be, our son. And because this was during COVID, it was uh, 20, Ezra was born in December of 2020. So this was into early 2021. The courts were still being impacted by closures and people um, staying home from COVID. And so our case was not heard for 12 months. So when our son was finally a year old, the court scheduled and heard the trial. And the judge that heard our case had never, had never worked on an adoption case before he was new to the bench and so whenever he made his decision he handled things in a very unusual and unprecedented way that our adoption agency had never seen before so due to the decision the judge made we had to suddenly in a matter of two and a half hours hand our son over and say goodbye to him and we haven't seen or heard from him since and he Ezra had been in our home, like I said, from the time he 
came home from the hospital. He was our son. He called me mama. He was our daughter's brother. And so I had to explain to my three-year-old, you know what, you have to say goodbye to your brother Ezra and, and you won't get to see him ever again, which how do you explain that to a three-year-old? That just is not something any parent wants to have to do. So we said goodbye to Ezra and it wasn't a lot, a typical loss to death. Like, like many people who've experienced a loss, you know, it's it, death is, is a painful way to lose someone in your life. So it was such an unusual loss, but it felt very lonely to try and process that I, Ezra didn't die, but he was my son and now he's not. And now I don't have him and I don't expect to ever see him again. You know, God in his providence, if he allows that to happen, that's amazing. But, you know, right now that doesn't look like it'll ever be the case. And so in that darkness of the pain, I like that passage in the book says, was so desperate to have control of anything that I could in my life. And for me, some of the ways that that played out was I tried to control the way that the narrative, what the narrative was around how he left. And so I explained some of that, but I think it's such a natural tendency when we feel like things are so out of control to, to inevitably find ways to find control over something, right? Because control can bring comfort or at least we think it can. We just, we think that if we can just control this, like then, and it's easy and it's comfortable because I know what to expect. But the interesting thing about control is that Dr. Uh, John Townsend, who's a psychologist and, and therapist, Dr. John Townsend says the emotion, the negative emotion most closely associated with the concept of control is anxiety, which is why in the subtitle, we talk about anxiety because the more we try to control and the more we think we have control, the more anxious we're actually going to be because we deep down know, and if we don't know it, we'll realize we don't actually have the amount of control that we wish we could have. And in a modern Western society, there are a lot of ways that our culture and lifestyle can allow us to think we have a lot of control and that has actually caused greater levels of anxiety in society because of this um, facade of control that we live with. And so the way to navigate that and to process and avoid the anxiety is to recognize the, the one who is in control, which we have a loving God who is in control and is sovereign and providential overall. And so as we release our grasp on control and hand things over to him, that is a path towards finding peace and hope and comfort that I think is not, not always intuitive because we think that, you know, grasping for that control, if we could just control the things, then we'd have the hope and the peace, but actually it's the opposite as we let go of that grasp and trust God, that's when those things come. And so in the book, we kind of walk through kind of the negative aspects of grasping for control and then point to the positive aspects of, of trusting in the God who has all control and, and allow people to come with us on that journey as we seek hope and joy and peace within it through intimacy with God.
Amen. Um, Lauren, you had to shift your perspective is basically what you just argued. Let me write, read three sentences on that from your book. Perspective shifting moments shape us. We can change our earthly perspective by shifting our eyes to an eternal perspective. But taking on an eternal perspective doesn't mean your earthly troubles go away. Would you amplify? Yeah. So I am grateful to be to have a great faith legacy in my family. And one of my uh, you know, grandparents is David Green, the founder of Hobby Lobby. And I'm so grateful for his example on many things, business, of course, you know, generosity, faith. But one of the things he always talks about when I hear him speaking to groups or, or even leaders within the organization is this desire that he has to keep an eternal focus. And so as I have watched him live that out, it's like it's deeply impacted me and my life. So that quote that you just read is really um, just from the legacy of my grandfather and my family of reminding me of the eternity that we have in Christ and through our relationship with God and how when we live in light of eternity and have that perspective, it allows us to live more peacefully today. So I'll explain that some more. So if we live in light of the idea that we only have the here and the now, that's going to cause us to think we need to get the most out of life or we, we need to accomplish all the things we need to, you know, whatever it is that we think we is going to make us happy. And that really leads to desperation because nothing is ever going to be enough in this in this world um, because we were not intended for this world we were created in god's image um, and we were created for a relationship with god and so as we find our identity not in the things of the world but in the things of god that's when we can live more peacefully and hopefully because we know that even if things are hard in this world, even if things are challenging or not what we expected in our lives, we know that God is bigger than all of it. He, he knows the future. He knows our present and we can trust him with that. So as we think about eternity, we can know that God in his providence will work all as Romans eight, I think it's Romans eight twenty eight says God will work all things, uh, works all things for our good. Um, and, and he will, that is a promise, but that, that means in the hard, good and the hard. And so God will work all things together for his, for our good and for his glory. And that may not be in this lifetime in the way that we expected, but we can know for certainty that that will be in, in eternity. So revelation 21, uh, you know, we know the end is that every tear will be wiped away and all the pain will be made right. And so whenever we are in eternity with Christ, we know that that all those tears will be wiped away. And that's an eternal hope that we have that can impact the hope we can feel in the present because we can trust the God who is sovereign and who is eternal. So I, I hope having that bigger kind of the bigger picture zooming out from my pain and seeing the bigger picture was helpful for me because it made me not feel so much despair 
I mean, the pain is real and certainly it's human to process grief and, and lament the, the real pains of the world. But having that perspective also allowed me to still have the glimmer of hope in my darkest moments because I knew, okay, I'm in this pain, but if not now, someday it will be okay. And someday it will be made right. So I hope that that will give people hope. Um, and, and just a reminder that even in your dark days, even in the hard parts of life, um, we can still have something to cling to in God and his promises. Um, you talk about our, our physical well-being impacts our ability to, to live life to the full. You talk about grieving, lamenting, resting. How did that play out for you? Yeah, well, that's a, I, I'm glad you asked that. I think it's really important and something that I did not learn easily. Uh, going through kind of these really painful circumstances in life, I think I did not always respond well in the sense that as a Christian and as someone who trusts, you know, trusts God and would say, I trust what the Bible teaches. I thought that to have faith in God meant I shouldn't necessarily feel sad or that, you know, if I, if I was sad about something, I just need to remind myself, yeah, but like God, God's got it. He loves you. And those are truths and they are good but i also didn't originally whenever i was first walking through pain i didn't know how to create space for my emotions and so i had to recognize that yes while those truths are true it is also true that god created us as emotional people god created us in his image and that means we are created with emotions and and, and for a capacity for relationship and in a broken world there's going to be pain. And so that means we are going to have negative emotions. So I, I learned through uh, not doing it well, that we have to create space to respect and honor the way God created us as emotional beings and allow for grief to come out and be expressed as lament. So there's an entire book in the Bible called Lamentations, right? Um, where God's people are lamenting that the the promised land they're not they're not in the promised land, and and through so many of the psalms you can read and see the psalmists crying out to God in their pain and 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 using language that to express their emotions and trusting God with that. So as I in my own pain was trying to ignore my feelings, I realized that's not really honoring to who God made me to be as a person with, yeah, with emotions. And so I think it's so important for believers to have community, have the church, um, have those that can wrap around you and you can express how painful things in life are and find comfort and community to wrap around you in that as well as go to God, honestly, with our feelings. So I think that's a very important part of, of processing painful things. And, and it doesn't have to be large pain points like, you know, for us, you know, losing our son Ezra. It can be even just for, for whatever life looks like that maybe you didn't expect. Even if that means, you know, you kind of expected at this point in your life to have a spouse or to, you know, have X number of kids or to have this job or to, you know, whatever it is, even if life just 
doesn't go our way, that can be something we have to grieve because we we kind of had this dream and this expectation that hasn't been fulfilled. There's so many ways that uh, you know we we face different things we have to grieve, and as we do that well, going to God with our lament, going to other believers to process that in a safe and healthy environment, it actually honors the Lord by um, trusting him as who he created us as, as emotional beings. So there's examples of ways I did not do that well in the book. And then I also hopefully point to resources to help people think through how can that happen? And the three, the three kind of practical things on the grief chapter that I point to are, it takes time to navigate and, and, and heal from grief. It takes talking, which means again, like we're relational. So talking to God, talking to our community and tears. So like, you know, as you cry, allow yourself to cry, that is a healing and therapeutic process. And so time talking and tears can be a journey to honor who we were created as emotional beings and allow ourselves to move towards healing. I'm glad you brought up community. Uh, so often we tend to do these things alone. We don't want to show it to uh, other people. Uh, and we may commune with God, but we need to commune with others. And that's why he's given us uh, the body called the church. Yeah. In a few minutes that we have left, Lauren, I'm going to touch on some things that come out in the book, not necessarily related to your story, but related to your life. Here's one line I love you to comment on. The goal of marriage isn't for our happiness, but for our holiness. Mm-hmm. How have you discovered yeah. that? Yeah, I love that concept that, I think it was easy to, you know, watch movies and get this narrative that, oh, you know, you get married and it's just the best and it's for you to be happy, um, which it, it can bring lots of happiness. But that's not, if we're looking at the biblical definition of the purpose of marriage, it really is a deep form of community. You know, you just talked about community and, and the role of the church and the importance of the church. And marriage is a way that we live in deep community with our spouse, right? Um, marriage, you're living together, you're one. And for the sake of our holiness, so that we can sharpen one another and point each other towards Christ and serve one another the way uh, Christ served the church. So uh, the parallel with marriage uh, is in scripture is um, Christ and the, ch- and the church, and the church is the bride of Christ. And just as Christ sacrificed himself for his church, um, we in marriage are able to model Christ when we serve one another and sacrificially uh, care for one another in marriage and, and use marriage to be able to point to the goodness and faithfulness of who Jesus is. And that is, I think, certainly countercultural in in marriage. We think you know, marriage is a uh, just what something that should make me happy. Yeah. What can I get from this, right? But it's how can we serve one another, and how can I live in my marriage in a way that points to God's goodness and glory? And certainly, that in the pain points of life, like when Michael and I have walked through these, you know, Zion's cancer and losing our son, Ezra, it was, it was a a new experience in our marriage to figure out how do you navigate pain and grief and suffering with that same perspective in marriage of wanting to serve one another. 
And so I'm grateful for the ways that scripture has encouraged believers towards living marriage in, in a way that is um, to serve one another because that, that served us well in, in our grief and to, to know that, okay, we're going to care for each other as we're each navigating loss and we grieve differently. Everyone grieves differently. And so as I was able to have him there to support me in my grief and, and, and care for me as I was you know, in that pain, I was then also showing up for him as well. And that was, that was a really beautiful thing that I'm so grateful to have had. And I know, I know not, that's not everyone's experience, but again, I think as we look to scripture and try and live out what it teaches, it does bring about beauty and good. A minute on prayer. I've always, or I should say, as I get older, I realize prayer is tuning my heart to God's heart. Mm -hmm. I love the way you express it, bending our will to God's will. Uh, yeah. how, 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 how have you made out on that score? Yeah. Oh, man, that's like a daily. <laughs> daily surrender? That daily reminder, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I love the way you just described that, though, with prayer. I, I mean, certainly you know, as someone who's been a believer for years, I would have said prayer was important. And uh, whenever, whenever you walk through the hard times, though, that's when it really, you know, really, prayer was my lifeline in some ways, but it was also so much harder to pray because there were there were times when all I could do was go to God with my pain. But there were also times that I found it hard to go to God if I was if I wasn't sure I could trust him because I was, he, I knew if, if God is in control, he has allowed me to have to have this son that I've loved for a year and now have to say goodbye. Can I trust him? Can I go to him? And so I just pressed, had to keep pressing in to, you know, I know that I, I might not feel it, but I know that I can. And so I'm going to go to him anyways, even if I don't feel it. And so much of my prayer life can be uh, defined between whether I'm going to God in prayer, wanting me to shape him into my will, or really trusting him and saying, okay, God, you shape my will to be like yours. And, and that's when it's transformational is when I truly surrender and say, okay, God, I'm not coming to you in prayer because I want to ask you to do things my way. I'm coming to you in prayer because I'm surrendering and saying, I, I want to trust you, help me trust you and shape my heart to be more like yours and what you are trying to do here and what you're trying to accomplish. And that is when the prayer was much more transformational. And so I think, you know, hopefully people can read that and, and relate in some sense of seeing kind of these ways that we might think about prayer and continue to try and practice, which I try and I preach this to myself every year. Like I need to practice going to prayer, wanting to be more like God and, and for him to shape me instead of the opposite. Cause there's no way like, I, I like, like it's beyond my control. I can't control God, but he in his goodness can allow us to be shaped more like him as we hand that over to him. Amen. Amen. This theme, the theme of the book. Last question. <clears throat> you refer many times in the book, Lauren, to other books. You'll quote one guy, you'll quote another gal, something you've read. 
it implies you read a lot. Uh, <laughs> what I want to impress on our listeners is the value of that. Would you uh, explain? Yeah. Yeah. I, I read through the Bible in a year, every year. And so part of my reading practice is first reading the Bible. I think it's so important for, for readers and believers to be first and foremost in the scripture for themselves, not just reading other people's thoughts or interpretations of the Bible, but actually be in the Bible. But then for my uh, spiritual life and just my growth, it has meant so much to also read other authors who have have read the scripture, have thought well, and are thinking about these passages or script or concepts, theological concepts, and are then kind of navigating through, unpacking that in the form of a book. And so I love reading other authors. That was kind of one of the one of the first books that I read that I remember reading was as a middle schooler. Someone that I knew that was a little older was reading a Christian theology book and. I remember thinking that was weird because we were, you know, in middle school and high school. But I, I like started reading it just because this other person had, and it really did spark in me this love of reading um, books that are, you know, other people are writing about, you know, unpacking theological concepts and spiritual concepts, and has just really ever since then, since middle school, has been a part of my life. So I encourage people to read well. Um, to read authors that are that are helping you think through concepts from scripture while also not giving up on reading the scripture itself. And and that can be said of Bible studies too. Like I love doing Bible studies and, and reading those who have that are gonna help me to think through what scripture teaches, but then also still kind of getting in the Bible for myself. So yeah, as people read my book, they'll see lots of quotes from other people. And hopefully that, you know, if you go to the back of the book where the appendix is, they can see some of the books that I've enjoyed and found something from. And, uh, you know, if you're looking for books, you can uh, reference that and see some good recommendations. Lauren, this has been fantastic. Uh, I only got through about a third of my questions. So <laughs> we could go on another hour or two, but Instead, I'm going to recommend to everybody, go get the book, Beyond Our Control, by Lauren and Michael McAfee. I'm going to take um, interviewers' prerogative by uh, ending with a quote, and we'll leave it there. It's a, a paragraph I'm going to read from kind of the middle of the book. It said so much. I don't know what difficulty you face as you read this today, Lauren writes. I'm confident many, if not most of the people who read this, will face far more challenging situations than we have. But I hope this truth is an anchor for your soul, as it has been to us. Not only does God have a plan to use our sorrows for the good of joyful intimacy with him, but he did not spare Jesus himself from suffering. Do not lose heart. Do not place your hope in changing worldly circumstances. Our true hope is in a God who is not only intentional with suffering, but he himself suffered. One day we will stand before him and our wounds will be healed by his. Hmm. Thank you, Lauren, for the time, yeah. and for the book, and for your life. Thank you so much, Bob. It's been great to be on here with you.